Welcome once again to the Frontlines of Freedom podcast brought to you by Renew Democracy Initiative. My name is Ivan Mawarire, your host, and I am a democracy activist from Zimbabwe, where we started a citizens movement. We were jailed for it, tortured for it, and we've lived to tell the story. And that's exactly what we do here on the front lines of freedom. We talk to people from around the world who, at great personal risk, have stood up to demand a better way of governance, have stood up for the values that they believe in and for things that will make our world a better place to live in. Today I'm talking to a man who has done some amazing things and has a record for it. And he he's somebody who is quite a figure as you will hear the things that he has done and 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 I'm excited to hear the things that drive him, the motivations and why he has done the things that he has done. We go all the way to Cambodia where we speak to Alejandro Gonzalez Davidson and and he's not a Cambodian but he he might as well be because of the work that he has done over there. He lives in Spain, but Alejandro is is a man of many nations uh, in his heart and and more importantly the mission that he has. He is the founder of an organization called Mother Nature Cambodia and uh, it's it, it is real uh, a real honor to have him with us here today. Alejandro, thank you very much for joining me today on the front lines of freedom and welcome. Yes, thank you for having me. Welcome. I love the the work that you have done. Your your passion and the things that you have championed are things that many people in this generation uh, will will understand because it's about the environment, it's about nature, it's about uh, conserving th- this this beautiful treasure that we have, this beautiful planet that we call home. Tell me a little bit about uh, Mother Nature and 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 what that organization is about and how you started it. Well, I was um, a English teacher for a while, and then I was a coach. I was teaching and coaching on leadership skills in Cambodia. I moved there in two thousand and one, and then I was a translator, uh, earning quite a good, you know, quite a bit of money. And then I remember, I remember around two thousand and ten, two thousand and eleven, I started going to the to the forests, you know, to the jungles of Cambodia quite often with my bicycle or sometimes with a motorbike. And I would, you know, my, my Khmer language skills, Khmer is of course the language of Cambodia, right? My Khmer language skills were, were improving quite, quite, uh, you know, quite dramatically. I, was, I mean, I was a translator from Khmer to English. So I was entering these forests, talking to these local communities, and I was understanding how the, the, the repressive regime, the, the, the dictatorship of Cambodia, you know, through the military, through the military police, through the army, through corrupt politicians, was... Um, how the dictatorship was, you know, was uh, the, the main factor behind the destruction of the forest and, and, and the destruction of the forest, of the jungles, you know, with elephants and with tigers and with leopards, you know, like amazing forests. I was actually seeing it with my own eyes. I wasn't just reading about it, you know, because I would go like I would go there uh, on my bicycle for like, I don't know, in July. And then I would go back again in June. Uh, sorry, in, in you know, June of the year after. And I would see the whole forest gone. 
you know, and it was just like they weren't planting anything, you know, local communities, indigenous local communities were not really receiving any benefit. They were just being destroyed. You know, they were losing their land, losing their forest. So I realized how I had the ability because of my skills and my knowledge and my, especially my language skills, I had the ability to do something. And I also realized how I really had to do something because the scale of the destruction of the environment in Cambodia was just out of control. So Alex, let me get you right here. So when you first went to Cambodia, starting Mother Nature was not the goal. That was never the the design for you. No, not not in the least. I was 21. I was escaping from the European winters, which can be a bit cold. And there was work to do in the capital of Cambodia, Phnom Penh. Uh, You know, English uh, teacher, paid quite well. You know, I uh, and I liked being there for a few months of the year and then I would come back to Spain or go to England. I'm half English, so I would go and, you know, go and see my mother in England. And that went on for like six, seven years, eight years, you know. So no, I mean, I, I went there to just, I don't know, to live my life and have, you know, to, to enjoy myself, I guess. And, 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 and the environmental, environmental campaigning only really got started in 2011. You know, as I said before, as a result of the realization that something had to be done. And, and Cambodia is quite an interesting country where you have a lot of international organizations, Conservation International, Fauna and Flora International. You have like a WWF, you know, the very large international organizations, very well funded. And their formula was just not working at all. What did you realize in the formula of these large organizations that just wasn't working? You, you, you looked at it. What did you see that, that you thought to yourself, no, there's got to be another way? It was, more, it was all about uh, working with the government to improve you know, the, the government's ability to, to, to protect the forest. So, for example, a large organization will have most of their staff will be Cambodian staff who happen to be moonlighting, right? They are also civil servants for the Ministry of Environment or for the Department of Agriculture and Forestry, which are the same, you know, they are the ministries who should be protecting the forest. So they were kind of like, their their approach was like, we'll work with the government. We will never criticize them in public. We will never shame them or name them. We will we will pay for their salaries, you know. We will we will spend a lot of a lot of our resources to empowering the government for them to protect the environment, the forest. Now that cannot work in a country where you have so much corruption. One of the most corrupt countries in the whole of Asia is Cambodia. And when you have a very repressive small elite, you know, Hun Sen, the prime minister, his family, his friends, they are the ones who a represent the government or are part of the government or the state, you know, army etc. B, they are the ones who are doing the logging, doing the filling in of lakes, building hydroelectric dams, where you're not really going to get any electricity out of them. So they, they were doing both things. So I'm like, you're not going to achieve anything by this formula. You know, we have to try something else, something which is more activist based rather than working with the government, rather than spending so much resources on a 30 page report in English, which Cambodian people can't even read, you know. So so that's when we, we started getting our own approach. Weeks ago, I hosted on the front lines of freedom a lady who who was uh, a politician and still is a politician from Cambodia. Her name is Mu Sokua. And one of the things she told us is that there was a point in the history of Cambodia that the Cameroon decided that they would reset the nation, that they would start Cambodia over when, uh, uh, you know, when they had taken over. And one of the things they did is that they got rid of all the educated 
people, in fact, they persecuted them in some way, were murdered. Did you find during your time there, and even now as you continue to work with Cambodia and Cambodians, that that has had an effect on the destruction of the environment? Uh, or or has the nation caught up? Have, have, have they recovered from that really dark period? You have a, a, you know, in Cambodia from 1975 to 1979, you had a very vicious uh, genocidal regime. You not only had a dictatorship, but you had a very genocidal dictatorship, you know, killing around two million of its own citizens, you know, uh, committing barbarous acts of, you know, crimes against humanity. Yes, of course, you will have a generation or even two generations completely traumatized as a result of this, as a result of this genocide. And the genocide actually came after a civil war, a vicious civil war, in the 70s. And after the genocide, there was another civil war and there was a, an invasion of a foreign army. Vietnam came in and invaded Cambodia and they had a very repressive dictatorship in place, which was no longer the Khmer Rouge, but still. So you have like a population, a country which has been under civil war or genocide or very repressive regime for decades. So I don't think it's so much a matter of like I think Cambodia has now, you know, 43, 43 years after the end of the genocide, I think Cambodia has now caught up. It has enough intelligent people. It is not a matter of like any audio who can read and write are dead. It's no longer like that. It's an issue of a, a lot of people are paralyzed with fear. There's too much post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. There's a lot of people who go, you know, especially people who are 40, 50, 60, they can, they, they, whenever the government does anything repressive, it kind of like it triggers something right, about the past, you know, 30, 25, 30 years ago. I mean, the Civil War only ended in 1997. So, and, and B, you have a very repressive dictatorship right now, you know, as I said before, very corrupt. So I think that's the biggest problem. You know, you have, you have A, in, in, in people's minds, it's not so easy to be brave because you have this, like, ingrained fear in you, paranoia, fear, tra trauma. And B, you have a very effective a regime which is very effective at, at, at repressing because they have been in charge for a long time. Hun Sen and his, and his, and his uh, friends in government, they are all, pretty much all, ex-Khmer Rouge. People, you know, people know that, you know, this guy, when he was 25, he was a murderer who killed hundreds of thousands of innocent people. So, and not just him, but the other people, you know, the guy who's in charge of the Minister of Interior, army generals, most of them are ex-Khmer Rouge. So, you know, it, it's definitely connected. That's, I think that's the biggest obstacle, yeah. Now, you make this decision that, look, something has to be done about the destruction of the environment. And so you start work now as an environmentalist and you start building Mother Nature. Talk to us about what you discover about the real world behind the destruction of the environment in, in Cambodia. What are some of the revelations you found that were shocking for you? The first one, which started, which I, you know, I, I realized about it in 2011, two years before we officially created Mother Nature. So Mother Nature Cambodia was created in 2013. And in 2011, I, was, I became very aware uh, logging of rosewood. Right, rosewood is a very expensive timber which only grows in tropical countries. Most of the rosewood will end up in places like China or in the US and the EU as part of luxury goods, you know, in really expensive cars or violins, violin, piano, you know. So, uh, a lot of rosewood logging was happening worth millions and millions of dollars on a, on a weekly basis. It was coming out of the forest, 
It was done with it was done with complete impunity. You could go into the forest. Anyone could go into the forest and do a logging of rosewood, but you could only, or you only, you could only sell it to a company called Timber Green. If you tried to sell it to somebody else, you would get caught. But if you sold it to Timber Green, the military police, the courts, the local authorities, the police, everybody would be, they wouldn't touch you. You would, you would have immunity as long as you sold that timber to Timber Green. Was that because Timber Green had a special license um, that they were granted or, or what? Timber Green was owned by a family of the dictator, Hun Sen. So you're talking about a company which has the right to collect timber from future reservoirs of hydroelectric dams. So 2010, China or Chinese Communist Party comes into Cambodia with billions of dollars and says, well, you need hydroelectric dams, you need cheap electricity, here's the money you build. Well, the Chinese companies, for example, Sino Hydro, etc., they will build the hydro- hydroelectric dams for you. But you need right, a company called Timber Green, they will have the monopoly over clearing parts of the forest which will be flooded because of the dam. So you have like this, this company buying timber from anywhere in the forest, very rarely from the future reservoirs, because the future reservoirs are quite small. There was only degraded. So, you know, it was, it, some people call it timber laundering. You're just laundering timber, right? You get the timber in and you say, oh, it came from the, the future reservoir of this dam. It never, it, you know, 99% of the time it never did. Who was enriching itself? The family of the dictator. And, when, and I was right there. Disguised as a tourist on my little bicycle, riding up and down. And I just realized, oh my God, you know, this is such a, not just a tragedy to see these incredible trees, incredible wildlife being destroyed. Not just, what a, what a tragedy that you have so much potential for ecotourism, research, you know, really healthy forest. What a tragedy that you are losing them. And what for? You know, most of the, most of the electric, hydroelectric dams were built to a really low standard. They haven't really produced any electricity or not enough electricity and, 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 and the environmental price to pay has been, you know, has been a catastrophe. And local communities, you know, they got a bit of money if they did the logging. But other than that, they never, they never saw any benefits from it. So, you know, that, yeah, so fake dams or mostly fake dams, which you have to pay because China has paid for them as a loan. So you owe huge amounts to China. You're going to end up with unreliable source of energy. In the dry season, they don't produce any electricity. And in the, even in the, in, the, in the rainy season, they don't produce enough electricity. And then you have lost billions of dollars worth of timber. So, yeah, that's, 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 what, that's what really got me started. And sorry. And in April in 2012, a friend of mine, a fellow activist, Chutbuti, a Cambodian activist, went to the forest with two journalists as a result of the information that I and other people passed on to him. So he went with the, with the journalist to expose what was happening. And the company, Timber Green, shot him and killed him in his car. That was April 2012. You, you, you're saying, this is, this is crazy, Alejandro. You're saying that this guy went and exposed what they were doing and they just simply shot him in his car. He had been there before a few months with, an, with another group of journalists to talk about this rosewood laundering Timber green, so it was being exposed. Right, you know, back then I was I was not yet a public figure. I had a, a job in the private sector. I was not yet doing uh, inter- media interviews. I was not yet doing my own Facebook videos like I did after. So what I did as I passed 
information from local communities, information that I had seen with my own eyes. I passed it on to this activist, Chutwati, who then would go with journalists to take pictures and expose it. So yes, that's that's the second. They, they killed him in his car as he was trying to expose, um, you know, part of the part of the 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 the, the, the timber uh, scam. Well, crime. Tell me, how did that? How did that make you feel? What was what was personally? What was the realization for you um, when when you hear the murder of this of this journalist? Yeah, I I had just recently been in the area. Uh, I had left a week, maybe two weeks before. I was in my office working in a private company, and a friend of mine from Australia, who was also a friend of mine from him of him, she calls me crying, saying, "Oh, they have killed." They meaning the dictatorship, right? They have killed Buti, they have killed Buti. And I didn't cry, but I was in shock. And then I was embarrassed. I thought, well, I should have been in that car with the foreign journalist, with the journalist. And because I am not a Cambodian, maybe he would have been safer. They wouldn't have dead. Maybe. That's what I thought. I was blaming myself for not being there. I was blaming myself for, you know, not, not being brave enough to be doing what he had been doing. About to say that's the day I decided that I would work for a few months more only to try and save up as much money as I could to then start my own or our own campaign, whatever you call it, which turned up being called Mother Nature Cambodia. But you know, it started as a right. I am no longer going to work for the private sector. Some money, which is my own money, I have a little bit of network. I have. English and Khmer language skills and Spanish language skills, I'm going to sacrifice. If I have to sacrifice my life for the remaining forest of Cambodia, I will do that. So that was that was a reaction that came. So his death was not in vain. You know, his, his death was not in vain at all. You know, just hearing you speak uh, of that, I can see the kind of progression of decisions that you you made to then to then start. Um, Mother Nature, and, and I must commend you for taking that step and, and saying that his death would not be in vain. Talking about the, the value of the lives of um, people within a dictatorship, it sounds to me from what you've just said that the, the perspective of dictatorships is that the lives of locals are expendable they they can they can be taken whenever and was there a realization as you were getting ready to start this that maybe as a foreign national there there will be a bit of fear from the regime to treat you badly or did you feel like you could be treated as badly as anyone no i i, I didn't i thought that as a foreign national they will definitely seek authorization from the very top before physically uh, harming you. They will definitely seek authorization from the very top of the regime before sending you to jail on trumped-up charges, which is different from Cambodian politicians, Cambodian NGO workers or environmental activists, which could be harassed or beaten up or killed, especially judicially harassed, without needing to get authorization from the very top. You know, a, a somebody influential at provincial level could do that. You don't need it to get authorization from anybody at the top. I think being a, a you you know European Union national like me, then they were kind of like, whoa, what do we do now with this guy? You know, I don't want to get in trouble from my superior. So yes, I think I think that was 
a shield that in a way protected me. But at the same time, I mean, once we and Mother Nature started doing Facebook videos, I was doing, the, you know, I was in the videos, media interviews. We wanted to stop a hydroelectric dam, which had been approved, but they hadn't started. It was the most pristine part of the country. We had seen it before. We knew what was going to happen. The Rosewood, the shooting of animals, wildlife, the eviction of local communities. That's when we said, not here. We are not going to accept this. Walk us through some of the actions that you did. You, you, you keep talking about the we. And I want to find out about the actions that you did. But even before we talk about the actions, let's make that the second part of your answer. The first part is, how did you build the we? Who was it that joined you? How did you get them to join you to become part of what you today call Mother Nature? Cambodia has seen so much environmental destruction so recently that it's different from European people. I think European people, most of the destruction in the environment in places like Europe, the US, was, you know, it happened a very long time ago. We didn't see it. We just have read about it. In Cambodia, if you are over the age of 25 or even be, even younger than that, you will have seen the destruction of the environment right in front of your eyes. You, it's not theoretical. You haven't read about it. You have seen it. You know, you used to live in a village with crocodiles. Now they completely gone. You used to go into the forest with huge trees. Now it's completely gone. So it wasn't hard for me at all to, to talk to young Cambodians. Most of the people who, who, who formed part of Mother Nature were university students of like 19, 20, 21, 23, 24 years of age. It was not hard at all to say to them, look, we have a campaign to stop this fake, uh, largely uh, fraudulent hydroelectric dam in the most pristine forest. Most likely we will not succeed, but at least we will die or we will, we will try, you know. And it was just so easy, you know. And, and, and I mean, it wasn't easy to do the campaign. It was, not, it was not hard at all to get people to become involved in the campaign. It was actually really, really successful because the Facebook videos were being watched. They were going viral. Not many people had seen a Cambodian. A non-Cambodian like myself, uh, speaking Khmer language on a social media video. This is 2013, 2014. I was doing the interviews without any fear at all. You know, I was riding my bicycle in the city saying, if anybody wants to shoot me or arrest me, I'm here. I don't have any bodyguards. I don't care. And I can't, people, people were like, whoa, you know, I want to be part of this movement. And then I, I guess eventually that we got so much publicity that people started realizing, hang on, maybe they can succeed. You know, maybe this campaign can stop, can force the government to stop the hydroelectric dam. So more people came in, you know. You know, you can, you can see me smiling here, Alejandro. It's because I am I'm realizing something amazing about what you did. And it's something that I know because this is exactly what we did in Zimbabwe. When I started the citizens movement, it was the exact same model. I made Facebook videos walking in the street talking about the issues. And when people saw it, they were like, hang on, this guy is onto something here. So you started with Facebook videos, and that's what got a lot of people interested, a lot of young people interested, and they wanted to become a part of what you were doing, right? Yes, yes. And they, they basically, with me, went to the area of the Arang Valley, which, which was going to be flooded by this fake hydroelectric dam started working with local communities, starting teaching them their rights, 
started doing their own videos, started doing their own media interviews. And eventually it just became, I mean, it became apparent that the regime was going to kick me out. This is late 2014. They already made it public. So I thought, well, I'm going to be kicked out or jailed very soon. So I'm going to delegate as much as I can to these incredible Cambodians, incredible young members of the team who will have to take over the campaign. And that's exactly what happened, you know. Uh, February 2015, I'm kicked out. And then the day after I'm kicked out, Hun Sen, the, the leader of the dictatorship, he says, please, I beg you, stop talking about the hydroelectric dam in the Orang Valley. It is not going to be built anyway. Just stop talking about it. When I thought, whoa, amazing, even though I had been kicked out. So, so wait, 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 wait. This, I, I, I am loving this right here. And, and you know, both you and I are, are just are smiling at this because I think this is a moment that a lot of people don't think ever comes for activists, you know. And I know you get this, that even when we start our work ourselves, we're thinking to ourselves, we don't really think we're going to succeed. We're just glad that, we get, that we're getting started, that, you know, that we're doing. But here you guys are actually having the regime asking you, begging in your words, begging you guys to stop talking about it. Why? Why were they suddenly asking you to stop talking about this? I think it just became like this huge thunderstorm on social media where you have like not only activists, not only NGOs work, uh, talking about it. You have like people from all walks of life, you know, like civil servants, teachers, young Cambodians, like teenagers, university students, older people. You had like so many radio stations talking about it. You had pretty much the whole country. It was like one of the most important topics. So the regime realized how if we go ahead with this, it's going to cause more harm than good because people know that the area is beautiful. They have seen videos and amazing pictures because many people were going there to, 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 you know, to, do, to do their own activism, you know, not part of Mother Nature. They just wanted to protect their, you know, the most important forest of the country. So, and the regime realized how we had exposed their fake hydroelectric dam. Don't tell me it is about electricity because we don't believe you anymore. It is about logging. And that was a huge success. So, yeah. When you look at your campaign as an environmentalist, at what point did you realize that this was beginning to become also a tool that exposed bad governance, that exposed the dictatorship, that exposed a lack of justice, uh, you know, in, in the country? Not at first. At first, it was it was genuine, genuinely a campaign to stop a destructive hydroelectric dam. And then after I was kicked out, the the rest of the team, I mean, I am abroad, but I continue to be very much involved. The rest of the team, all Cambodians, they started a new campaign, which was extraction of sand from coastal Cambodia for export to Singapore. Hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars worth of sand were being extracted from Cambodia, from beautiful mangroves. They were being exported to Singapore. Local communities were not seeing any benefit. Mangroves were being destroyed. So that was the second campaign. And again, it was like, we weren't thinking along the lines of, we want to expose the dictatorship. We want to expose, you know. We were just thinking, this massive injustice has to stop. You know, very basic thought. You know, it wasn't a deep strategy. You know, it was like, this is unacceptable. We are going to sacrifice our lives, our freedom to stop this. And the second campaign 
that's when the regime really started to crack down on, on, on Mother Nature Cambodia. So I had been kicked out. T- tell us about, about this crackdown. You get kicked out. What else happens to, to, the, to the team? Well, I think they, they thought, well, let's, let's kick this, this Alex guy out, uh, you know, because once we kick him out, he's the leader. That's what they thought in their mind. They didn't think that Cambodian people uh, were actually working towards this because they wanted to protect it because of from, from their heart. You know, they thought, oh, this, this foreigner is giving money to this young Cambodian. The moment we kick him out, the whole movement will collapse. And the complete opposite happened. So the next, the next campaign, one month and a half into the campaign, the sun mining is stopped. Local communities are all protesting. We are literally kicking out the illegal sand mining out of the, out of the mangroves. And then in, in, in August 2015, three members of the team, three leaders of the team, they are jailed. And that's, you know, that's, that's the start of the ongoing and still ongoing right now. You know, it's like every year, every two years maximum, young Cambodians who are a member of the team, they do a campaign which is mostly successful uh, it, it reaches huge audiences on Facebook. They do all the videos. I don't do any more videos on Facebook. I just help with some editing, you know. They do videos on Facebook. They do media interviews. They expose environmental crimes by the regime, corruption, etc. And then, and then, and not just fake hydroelectric dumps, but sand mining along the Mekong River. Uh, anyway, and then the regime will you know, we'll send two or three, four or five people to jail. But anyway, one, one more thing that's, that's something to be really, really proud of is in November 2016, after the campaign and after videos and after three of our guys being in jail for close to a year in awful conditions, as you can imagine, Cambodian jails are not the same as European jails, the government stopped, the government of Singapore stopped importing Cambodian sand. So the sand mining stopped. And the, the Singapore government officially said, um, we, you know, we are, sorry, the Cambodian government officially said, we realize how the impacts are really high to the environment and we are going to stop the exportation of uh, coastal sand. So that was a huge victory too. I think that's when the regime realized how these guys can not only expose my corruption or our corruption and our incompetence, they are also effective at stopping uh, schemes which make a lot of money, logging. Sun mining. So we make it, not only it's affecting our image, not only it is inspiring other young Cambodian people to rise up or to speak up at least, it is also causing us losses because we can no longer do these environmental crimes. That's when they really started cracking down on us. Oh my goodness. I, and, and, and to be clear, the, the sand mining, this is sand that was being mined from the rivers and coastal areas being taken to Singapore. Was this to, to, this is, this is to build other islands in Singapore and to kind of expand, you know, all their tourism and, you know, their real estate, uh, you know, kind of projects there, right? It was, it was Singapore needs or has used hundreds of millions of tons of sand from neighboring countries for around 40, 50 years to make the country bigger. The country is too, it's only a little island, right? So it's too small, they need to, they need sand to make it bigger. New airport, new islands, new residential areas. So they, they basically get all this sand from wherever they can, they dump it on the sea, they put concrete around it, and they build new land. And then they, you know, they don't really care where it comes from. They don't care about the environmental impact it has on Myanmar, Vietnam, Cambodia, Malaysia. They don't care. They don't care about the corruption behind it. But in Cambodia, 
we forced them to care because we were relentlessly talking about it on international media, social media. And as I said before, people were jailed, you know, Cambodian innocent people were jailed. So I thought, I think that eventually Singapore thought, oh, well, no more sun from Cambodia. We have been, it's too toxic, you know, let's move somewhere else, which is what they did. They they moved to Vietnam, you know, they didn't, didn't stop importing the sun. They just stopped importing Cambodian sun. It was too much of a headache. I like that statement. We forced them to care, and and I feel like that's that's probably going to be the the title of our podcast episode today. We forced them to care. We're we're going to come to the end of our our conversation, which is just fascinating to hear the things that you guys have done. But the information I have is that Mother Nature was eventually banned as an organization. Uh, you've just told us you were banned. But you were also in absentia. You eventually were sentenced to quite a number of years in in jail, I think, or was it months? Tell us about that, the banning and, and, and your sentencing and how that came about. But the banning is like we don't really care about it, you know, because we don't really, dictatorship, we don't think of it as a legitimate democratic government, you know. It's like, well, you are an illegal government anyway. So whatever you say, we don't really care about it. I mean, we are careful in terms of security. But, uh, you know, uh, we had six activists jailed in 2003, in 2020, three more 2021, pretty much the whole team was jailed. The government again said, oh, this is an illegal entity. They are terrorists. They are traitors, you know. Um, but they came out of jail, some of them uh, 14 months in jail, even stronger and, and, and saying, well, I, I used to be a little bit afraid before I went to jail. Now I am no longer afraid. Now I am really going to continue with my campaign. So, yes, the government has officially banned Mother Nature Cambodia, but we don't care, you know. It's like, well, you, who are you to ban us? We are doing it for the benefit of, of the country. You are not. So we don't really care, you know. If you keep arresting us, Cambodian people will be more angry. You get pressure from the international community. So... Yeah, anyway, that's, 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 you know, that's in terms of like the banning of Mother Nature Cambodia. And then in terms of uh, judicial harassment against me, it is also quite regular now, 2015, and then 2009, 2020, and then 2021. Uh, I was accused of, the last one was treason, right? The same as you, right? I was accused of treason. And, and every time, and every time, well, plotting to, commit acts of treason same same meaning it's five to ten years in jail and every time they arrest me i go i do exactly the same thing i publicly say on on facebook interviews etc and i through my lawyer tell the court say well here i am give me a visa and i will go and defend myself in court or i will go to jail this is the thing uh, alex i found very interesting is that they banned you from the country but they they wanted to try you, but wouldn't let you back in the country to face trial. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And I'm like, well, I mean, I'm not afraid of you guys. You guys are the ones who are afraid of us. You're afraid of your own people. You know, of course, right? Dictatorships are mostly about fear. Nobody's more afraid in a dictatorship than the leaders of the dictatorship, right? So... I have done. I have done nothing wrong, you know. Let me into the. Let me into the court. Uh, the, the media will go in too, you know. Maybe the embassies will send some monitors. You know, United Nations will try and monitor, and the whole world will be at least the whole of Cambodia 
will be exposed to your kangaroo court and your made-up charges. And I think that's when the regime realized how, well, oh, we, you know, we don't really want him to come. We will charge him. We'll receive very serious charges. And the law demands my presence in the court. But then don't let him in and continue putting him on the blacklist, which is completely illogical. But it's kind of like quite indicative, you know, a very afraid regime and a judicial system which is completely rotten. So, you know, I think that I, 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 what, what I did and what other Cambodians are doing, because it's not just me who is uh, kicked out, banned, and then charged and then stopped from returning, all we can do is just continue pushing and continue exposing their fear and their, you know, arbitrary use of the court system and inspiring people to become more brave. Because without bravery, without acts of, yeah, without acts of bravery, you will never change a dictatorship. You can't change a dictatorship through report writing or through complaining to the UN. You have to change a country through being brave and being willing to take risk, as you, of course, people like you know very well, right? Alex, what a brilliant statement to end on. Without acts of bravery, you will never change a dictatorship. And I want to take a moment to salute your work, my friend, to pay homage to the decision you made uh, as a young man after the murder of somebody who acted on information that you gave, but also really driven by the passion that you have for the environment and for a better world, for better governance, for justice, uh, you know, in our world. I want to I want to just, you know, commend you for that. I know that as somebody who has become known the world over, you you continue to train the young people in Cambodia to stand with them, to amplify their voices and their messages. And, and I know that you continue to speak to the world about the need to preserve the world we have, but more importantly, the need to hold accountable people who think that the, the world is, is theirs and theirs alone, therefore they can do whatever they want uh, to do with it. So Alex, thank you so much for being with us on the front lines of freedom. Thank you, yeah, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure.